This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Looking ahead to 2030, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today I'm sharing two interviews with sponsors of HFMA's Healthcare 2030 series. I'll also have a conversation with Paul Barr, the HFMA senior editor who's at the helm of the series. But first, let's hear the latest news. Here's HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. Hello, everybody. Uh, We are talking about one of our favorite topics on Beyond the News, and that's the No Surprises Act. Big news in recent days is that HHS handed down new guidance for the arbitrators who decide out-of-network payment disputes under No Surprises. My interpretation, Sean, is that HHS, along with the Departments of Labor and Treasury, those being the three agencies that administer the legislation, maybe waving the white flag here, at least for now, in terms of their efforts to use the arbitration process to kind of tamp down the money that flows in the healthcare payment ecosystem. But how do you see it? Well, it looks like it's a step in the right direction, Nick. You know, on March 17th, CMS did instruct the certified independent dispute resolution entities to go ahead and resume making payment determinations for disputes involving items or services furnished after, on or after October 25th. So this was following, of course, that court decision that came out on February 10th, where they told all the entities to hold payment determinations because of the Texas judge's decision on February 6th, showing that the arbitration process was skewed in the favor of commercial insurers as it related to the QPAs. So it does seem like it's in maybe a good direction for a more balanced IDR process, but definitely more to be seen here. And with the excessive backlog that we've all been following, uh, I'm sure well over 100,000 cases now, because I think it was 70,000 before this got froze. We'll wait to see what happens there with the backlog. Yeah, great point. I mean, I can say they're waving the white flag, but really we have to see how the rubber meets the road. For those who haven't been following this, HHS all along has wanted the qualifying payment amount defined as essentially the median in-network rate for a given service in a given market to hold sway in these payment disputes. And obviously that would have favored health plans in most cases, but two court rulings, and, and you just alluded to this, in favor of providers, both in cases brought by the Texas Medical Association, have forced HHS to issue, I think now two rewrites of the regulations dating back to last summer. Uh, And this latest redo basically says, just as the No Surprises Act text appeared to have established, that several other categories should be considered on equal footing with the QPA if either party, health plan or provider, submits information that falls under those categories. Just as an example, one of the categories is 
teaching status, case mix, and scope of services of the provider. In the regulations that were issued prior to this latest guidance, those factors and others were substantially de-emphasized relative to the QPA and weren't even guaranteed to be considered. So it's a, it's a pretty significant change in the context of this process. Sean, anything to add as far as impact or additional insight that people should know? Yeah, I mean, the new considerations that are added to the QPA are significant and hopefully will have an impact, you know, level of training, experience and quality of outcomes measures. And one of the ones that I'm going to be watching very closely and I think is a good addition is the ability for the plan and the insurer to enter into network agreements, because what I'm hearing is because providers' hands were kind of cuffed in just taking whatever the QPA, the, the, the payers gave them. Therefore, the payers and the plans were not in agreement or, or were not looking to enter into network agreements because they knew they could get better deals is what folks were saying through those QPA arrangements. So the additional points that you're talking about there, Nick, and considerations in addition to the QPA for the IDR process are definitely a movement forward. So that's good to see. I will want to call out, though, that folks, as of March 17th, also CMS and the agencies came out and said that the new payment determination notices, most of those will come through the auto reply email address from CMS. So you will now get most of your payment determination notices through email. So please make sure you go out and make sure that that email address is allowable in your email, whoever's getting those emails at your facilities, so you don't miss those. And those are, I think it's auto-reply-federal-idrquestions at cms.hhs.gov. I kind of remember that email address because I've used it so much. So please make sure you visit that website and make sure those are allowable in your email addresses. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't want those messages laying in your junk folder if you can help it. Right. As you said, the, the backlog of cases in the arbitration portal was just staggering even before this nearly six-week freeze that HHS implemented in the wake of the latest court ruling. So I don't know what the count is as of this recording, but chances are it's a uh, pretty sizable number. In other words, if you're a provider and are looking forward to cases being decided under this new guidance, that's great, but you may be waiting a little while. All right, uh, that'll do it, everybody. Thanks as always, and talk to you soon. If you haven't read the first two volumes of HFMA's 2030 series, now is the time to catch up. With support from Chartis, Bank of America, Forvis, and Extend Healthcare, HFMA has released a total of eight reports, as well as podcast episodes and annual conference sessions about the biggest challenges in healthcare. The first report of Volume 2, Restoring Trust in Healthcare, was recently named as a finalist for an ASBI Award from the American Society of Business Publication Editors. On today's episode, I have interviews with two of our sponsor organizations. But first, here's HFMA Senior Editor Paul Barr discussing the 2022 reports. So what were the big takeaways from the pieces this year? What was surprising to you? Well, I don't know if it was surprising, but a definite takeaway was the diverging views that healthcare providers had in terms of whether there is a trust problem in healthcare. And the story that covered that topic looked at both trust from the patient slash consumer perspective and also from the employee's perspective. It just seems like some CEOs and other executives see it as a big problem and others 
see it as not a problem at all. The other thing that stood out to me was the degree at which health systems and insurers are becoming more and more like each other. And that trend is expected to continue, meaning the industry is moving more towards integration than away from it. In a minute, listeners are going to hear a couple of interviews with our sponsors. And something that came up in both interviews that I thought was interesting was workforce. Now, volume one had a whole piece on workforce. This year, we didn't look at that specifically, but workforce seems to be seeping into all of these topics. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's true. And you can find it in all four sections of the latest volume. It bleeds into all four parts of the series through restoring trust specifically because the employees need to trust the system before the patients can. And some of them have lost some of that trust as a result of the pandemic and how things unfolded during and after that. In the public health realm, part which is part two of the series, that too involves workforce because health systems are being asked to take on more work as a result of the public health crisis of COVID-19. And in terms of the other two parts, workforce plays a role in both payvider and building a better patient-clinician relationship in the ways that the skills that are going to be needed by employees are going to be changing. And I I guess that's an ongoing theme in general is that that change is going to be continuing and constant. If you're all caught up on volumes one and two and want to see more, you won't have to wait long for something new. The first piece of volume three will be out in June. The evolution of the healthcare industry, particularly over the last few years, has exacerbated existing challenges and created new ones for leaders. In the conversation you're about to hear, Katie Sklarski, a principal with Chartis, discusses how leaders are facing those challenges with an eye toward financial sustainability. One very clear takeaway I noted, especially came through very clearly in the written responses, was how frustrated people are feeling with the healthcare system right now. I think they have a very strong feeling that it's pretty broken. And yet all the questions that were asked about the efforts that have been put in place to try to fix it, people don't have a lot of faith in them. So a good example of this was a question related to value-based care. So as many people I'm sure know, value-based care was an effort that has been put in place to try to change the financial incentives around how care is paid for to help drive down costs while focusing on improving the quality of care. But when the respondents were asked if they felt like a shift away from fee-for-service to value-based care would better serve their patients, surprisingly, 20% of them said they didn't think it would. And it is kind of surprising because that's the whole purpose is to make it better for, for patients and for caregivers. But I think when you think about the context within which this question was asked and the timing, so sort of where we are from the past three years, healthcare has seen a lot of frustrations over the past three years because of the pandemic. And in particular, uh, the pandemic brought a lot of challenges to the forefront that have been around for a long time, but have just now been experienced in a much different way. So when I think about what those things are, it's really you know pointing to the significant disparities that there are in our healthcare system. The fact that even with some of these efforts like value-based care, 
payment models really haven't gone far enough and the infrastructure is not necessarily there to incentivize wellness or address social determinants of health, which are significant drivers of cost. Things have been really rough on the healthcare industry in the last couple of years. And it's hard, I think, for some leaders to think about strategic financial improvement into the future in a place that they're feeling really comfortable. But how can they plan now? And and why is it important to plan now at a time when they're just trying to put out fires? You're definitely correct. The system has changed significantly. And what made an organization successful pre-pandemic in most cases will not make them successful now or in the future. And crucial to figuring out how to change and where to improve and what to focus on is thinking about what your future path to success looks like as an organization. And once you figure that out, the financial improvement journey, the journey to sustainability should really be anchored in how the organization wants to position itself for that future success and how it's going to take advantage of some of those new innovations that are out there that will be helpful. And from there, really thinking about how to align their clinical operations and their business and operating models to be mutually supportive and enabling of that future vision. Well, of course, also thinking about how those improvements might impact the caregiver and the patient environment, as well as reduce costs. So, I mean, that's a lot to digest, but I think to break it down into some more specific questions to think about as you think about that repositioning might include things like, how do I have to change my clinical network to better meet my consumer needs? What types of services do I need to be offering and in what distribution? And what modalities of care do I need to be offering those services in? Should they be online? Should they be in person? How do I think about where I might want to divest or partner in non-traditional and traditional ways to expand my network? How do I want to think about my relationship with payers so we have a common goal for our patients and we can work together to develop reimbursement models that help meet our patients' needs? How do I think about my operating structure differently so I can meet the strategic goals of the organization? So, for example, if part of my repositioning is focused on population health management, does an operating model that organizes around local communities or regions versus modalities of care like ambulatory or inpatient make more sense? And what kind of data and management infrastructure might I need in this in this current care environment where it's becoming less and less predictable? from changing consumer preferences, unstable workforce needs, and the risk of future pandemics, unfortunately, as well as how can I think about changing my systems and processes to provide high reliable care in an equitable way, which is becoming more and more of an imperative for success. If you're talking about better and more efficient care and better and more efficient ways to do things like revenue cycle tasks and things, that's that's really going to affect your workforce. It's going to be good for your workforce, too. And, you know, if we're talking about cost pressures, we've got to include workforce in that conversation. It is no secret that we've been having some very tough times in the healthcare industry with workforce. So what are some things that healthcare organizations can leverage to better support and retain their workforce? You know, before diving into this one, I do think it's important to note that there is not necessarily a one size fits all solution. So much of it depends on your workforce's specific needs and what will best engage them and make them feel valued. Um, So a good example of this uh, is, I'll point to a recent survey that was conducted by Gerard, which is a healthcare strategic communications firm that is actually a part of Chartis. But they found that there are differences in how nurses feel engaged depending on how satisfied they are with their pay. 
So people who aren't satisfied with their pay tend to find some of the traditional avenues for engagement, like nurse recognition week or pizza parties, to be pretty ineffective and unfortunately can also be harmful. Uh, so for nurses who feel overwhelmed and underpaid, that notion that a pizza party might be able to fix fix that feeling makes people feel like leadership doesn't really understand how to make them feel valued. However, the survey also found that universally, most nurses have the most trust in their direct managers, highlighting that there is a strong need for frontline managers to be well-trained communicators, as well as trained on how to promote connectivity and foster a feeling of value and respect on their teams. In addition to that, a couple more, three more tactical things to consider. Psychological and physical safety are really important, unfortunately, in this day and age in particular, with uh, many uh, violent events that go on throughout the country. And employees really need to feel safe when they come to work every day. The second would be partnering with educational institutions, whether that's nursing schools, allied health organizations, or medical schools uh, to help increase the staffing pipeline. And the third would be uh, making work more efficient. So as you think about redesigning, you want to make sure that the right thing to do is also the easiest thing to do. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of this can be done by leveraging care models and operating models to take advantage of technology to help drive that efficiency, as well as deploying care teams in a different way to help unlock more opportunities for top of license work and job satisfaction. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, workforce, again, another another topic that we've been covering quite a bit at HFMA and always looking for creative solutions, more efficient ways of doing things, because it's another one of those classic, it was a problem before the pandemic and now it's worse and it's not going away anytime soon. I'm looking forward to seeing what kinds of solutions come out of this very challenging time. So Katie Sklarski, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Our second interview today is with Danielle Solomon, Healthcare National Industry Leader for Forvis, which you may remember is the newly combined BKD and DHG. You might recognize Danielle from the interview she did about volume one of Healthcare 2030 on this podcast. I'll link that episode in the show notes. She's also been a panelist in our two annual conference sessions on the series, and I always enjoy hearing her thoughts on these topics. In the conversation you're about to hear, we discuss how good leadership is essential in improvement. Part one of this year's series focused on consumer trust. And I'm going to ask you a big unfair question because that's my favorite kind of question. Whose job is it to ensure a consumer's trust in a healthcare organization? That is a really loaded question, Erica, but I think it has a simple answer is it's, it's yours, it's mine, and I, I think it's everyone's. Um, it's extremely essential. The article really discussed the results that we're seeing due to this mistrust of delayed and avoided care. And really when I dig into it, I understand why. If I don't feel respected and if I don't feel safe, then I'm not going to follow through. And if I don't trust my doctor, I'm not gonna follow through with the orders that they've provided. Or if I don't trust the organization or if I don't just, it really sometimes it isn't even the specific person. I just don't trust healthcare in general. I don't think that it's out there to help me. So it, it really is everyone's responsibility. Trust in leaders by workforce isn't discussed in this particular piece, but we really can't ignore it either. Well, the workforce was not addressed specifically in a piece in this year, but it touches everyone. 
The pandemic has highlighted some issues in the healthcare workforce that leaders need to be thinking about. So how does workforce trust play into the topic of consumer trust? How do they connect? You know, that's a really good question. And I've been intrigued by really looking at which organizations are doing well. And when I say well right now, I mean financially well, you know, this kind of the the patients are engaged, they have good quality statistics, they're financially performing. So I kind of look at that three-legged stool when I define if an organization is doing well in, in those areas and really trying to figure out why are they doing, why are some organizations doing better than others? And, and there's a lot of factors that do go into that. But I think I'd be remiss if I didn't consider leadership styles and how those organizations have positioned themselves and how those leaders have led through that change. I, I do think it's critically important. And the pandemic really did teach us that understanding that change is constant, change is happening, and really understanding having those leadership skills to lead through change um, and trust in the leaders and trust in the decisions that are making is critically important. And, and so if I take it a step further, if you have engaged and physicians and nurses and clinicians and therapists and everyone that you encounter through your continuum of care, the patient service representatives, the receptionists, the technology that you engage with, I, I think if all that is engaged, which goes through change management and trust in leaders, that's going to just you know fall down to consumers and having consumers be more engaged as well. So I, I do think that having those leader those valid leadership skills of understanding and leading through change is proven to be very um, very important these days. Yeah, definitely. So when we got together a couple of days ago to kind of talk through what we wanted to talk about, um, we got into discussing part three of the series, realigning care and coverage. And you made the comment that we're moving a lot of people's cheese. Uh, I think listeners will probably recognize the reference uh, to the 2009 book by Dr. Spencer Johnson. And I would bet that just about everybody, if not everybody listening, has had their cheese moved at some point, probably recently. But what does this mean to you? How does good leadership work when we're moving cheese? Yeah, I, I love that you pulled that into this discussion because the pandemic has taught us all that change is constant. We need to embrace it and really hone in on our change management skills, reactions, and approach. Um, we're asking everyone to do a lot more with less. We're asking folks to challenge the status quo. We're asking them to change the way that they've done things for many years and figure out a better more effective and more efficient way to do things. So in one respect, I think it's really empowering for all of those out there in the workforce right now that we really have this avenue that we can really be change agents and improve things for the better. But in the same respect, change is challenging at times and it's a little uncomfortable. And, you know, there's the quote, uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think that is really, really important right now for us to all just embrace that and understand that, it's something that we really need. It's it's constant and it's necessary. Something the the part three article goes into a lot is the relationship between payers and providers. How can good leadership help make for better relationships, particularly when it comes to the people involved? You know, as we're focused more on health and being proactive, I think that engagement of understanding providers and payers is, is critical. And 
it is possible and it's happening. And and it's very encouraging to me. It encourages folks to try something new, to bring up new ideas, to partner in different ways, to reach out to consumers. We're seeing community centers. We're seeing religious or spiritual centers. We're seeing a lot of different ways to reach people where they are and really try to engage them in their care. And it is very encouraging for me. In a time of so much challenge, especially challenges that we're talking about in these pieces, it's nice to hear that there are some some good things happening that people really are paying attention to these issues and working to improve. So Daniel Solomon, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Additional reporting is by Nick Hutt, Sean Stack, Paul Barr, and the HFMA editorial staff. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is Chief Content Executive. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Our new podcast, Healthcare Blame Game, is debuting soon. Watch your HFMA daily newsletter and hfma.org for more. Hippity hop hop.